0: Well, if you would, please turn in your Bibles and find the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, and listen to me as I read aloud verses 18 to the end of the chapter. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sencray he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next They took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So that Paul's second of three missionary journeys has officially come to an end and we're tempted as we get to the end of a journey like this to think that it's all about Paul, all about Paul's gifts, all about Paul's travels, all about Paul's weaknesses, all about Paul's work, and it's not. And the last thing that I wanna do is take anything away from the apostle Paul. That would be an awful thing for anybody to do. Paul is uh, the towering apostle in the book of Acts. He is a towering figure in the early church. I want to be like Paul. I hope if you're a Christian you want to be like Paul. I want to follow his example. I'm thankful for his life and for his teaching. But as Luke wraps up Paul's second missionary journey, he lifts the hood of the engine and shows us the many moving parts behind Paul's ministry. We see the people and the churches who either made Paul's work possible or who took Paul's embers and fanned into flame, roaring, spreading gospel fire. So as important as Paul is, he is not all important. Christianity began as a dynamic movement of men and women exercising their spiritual gifts for the good and the growth of the church. And it's tempting even today to elevate singular Christian leaders as especially important. It's tempting to think that the future of the church depends upon the the latest book or the excellent debating skills of your favorite Christian leader. But we all play a part, and each part is valuable, whether that part is very much up front or behind the scenes, whether you are a public teacher or a private servant, whether your ministry is organized or organic, Christianity today is a dynamic movement of men and women exercising their own spiritual gifts for the good and the growth of God's church. Now look again at our passage. Paul sails from Sencri, which is just outside of Corinth in Achaia, and he's going to Syria because he wants to visit Antioch, his sending church. He makes several stops along the way. The first is Ephesus, but he doesn't stay long in Ephesus, just long enough to deliver a message in the synagogue. However, he does uh, leave his traveling companions, Priscilla and Aquila, in Ephesus. He goes on to Caesarea, a port city, an important Roman center not far from Jerusalem. And most people think that the church that Paul greeted in verse 22 is actually the church in Jerusalem, not the church in Caesarea. Not only would we expect Paul to go to Jerusalem, where most of the first apostles still remain, but the fact that Luke says he went up to the church and went down to Antioch, that sort of resonates with Jerusalem, the city on a hill. Now, there is some question as to when exactly Paul's second missionary journey ended. I know a lot of you are really wondering about that this morning when you're driving to the church building today. When exactly did Paul's second missionary journey end? I think it ends once he arrived in Antioch. And if that's true, then verse 23 would mark the beginning of his third missionary journey as he visits the churches God used him to plant several years before. Now, if you think verse 23 is actually the end of his second missionary journey, well, maybe you can argue with somebody about that over lunch. No, I would never encourage you to argue in any unedifying way. All right, in verses 24 through 28, Luke takes us away from Paul back to Ephesus, where a man named Apollos has arrived. Apollos is from Alexandria. He's an amazing teacher. He begins preaching in the synagogue until he is corrected and helped by Priscilla and Aquila. And he then goes to Corinth and starts up a teaching ministry there. That's our passage. And from this passage, I want to draw out three values, three things that I think you, based upon this passage, you yourself should value as a Christian from the events of these verses, the, these. Three values underscore the way God uses ordinary men and women with different gifts for the good and the growth of the local church. All right, three values. I'm just going to give them one at a time. First, the value of mother churches. The value of mother churches. So a few years ago, a number of missions agencies started using this term, sending churches, sending churches. It's a good phrase. I used it already to describe the church in Antioch. ascending sending churches are churches that raise up leaders and send them out. Sending churches are deliberate about planting other churches. If we are faithful as a church to the Great Commission, we should want to be a sending church. However, I think there is another way of thinking about, or at least talking about, the local church that may be more helpful, mother churches. Mother churches aren't merely interested in starting new works. A mother church never stops caring for the churches that she helps start, just like a mother never stops caring for her child. And if you're a mom, you didn't say, well, you're a toddler now, so I'm done with you. Now, I think it's been said that that mothering never stops, right? A mother church never stops caring about churches that have come from her. A mother church cares about gospel ministry beyond her four walls and beyond her own community. A mother church sends leaders and and cares for them as best she can, as long as she can, either directly or indirectly. Our passage is filled with mother churches. So let's start with the church in Jerusalem. Look again there at verse 22. When he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. So after landing in Caesarea, we're told that Paul went up and greeted the church. I've mentioned a few reasons why I think that church he greeted is not the church in Caesarea, but actually the church in Jerusalem. Here's another reason why I think it's the church in Jerusalem. Look at verse 18. Luke tells us Paul was under a vow. That's how verse 18 ends. Paul was under a vow. Uh, He had been growing his hair out in Corinth, And this resembles the Nazarite vow that we find in Numbers chapter 6. An Israelite would take the Nazarite vow when he wanted to thank God for something or especially devote himself to God in in an unusual way. Well, Paul may have wanted to remember Jesus' promise to keep him safe in Corinth. That's the promise we looked at last week in verse 10. But once out of Corinth, Paul begins the process of ending his vow, which included cutting his hair. And according to Numbers, the vows that these Israelites take would officially end in Jerusalem at the temple. So maybe this is why Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem. Now, whatever the details, we need to recognize as Christians that that Paul did not need to make this vow. He didn't have to take this vow. He was under grace, not under law, And perhaps the vow was one way that Paul could be all things to all people, desiring to continue to be a good evangelist among his Israeli brothers and sisters. In any event, Jerusalem, where he went, is certainly the picture of a mother church. Jerusalem is the, the first church in Christianity. It's the church that sent Barnabas to Antioch to minister. It's a church that later sent Silas to work with Paul. It's the, the local church that helped answer this universal church problem of whether or not Gentile Christians needed to be circumcised. Right? The, the, the Jerusalem church had a great ministry. She was really a mother church, a church that cared about believers around the world. Let's look at another church, the church in Antioch. This is the main reason Paul left Corinth. This is where Paul's first missionary journey started. Antioch is is far north of Jerusalem in Syria. We know from Acts chapter 11, verse 19, that the persecution that faced Stephen in Acts chapter uh, led others to go out and uh, spread Christianity outside of Jerusalem. And they founded a church in Antioch. Scattered, persecuted Christians left Jerusalem and founded a church in Antioch. Well, as I mentioned, Barnabas went to Antioch. He sent for Paul. They served together for over a year. And then in Acts chapter 13, the Antioch church sends Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. They come back in Acts chapter 15. What do they do? Well, now they send out Paul and Silas, and they send out Barnabas and Mark. So Antioch is this vibrant hub of gospel ministry. But there's more. I recognize that Paul went to Caesarea primarily to get to Jerusalem, but we need to realize that Caesarea also had a church, and Caesarea had become home to a thriving and helpful congregation. We learn in Acts chapter 8, verse 40, that Philip's first missionary journey ended in Caesarea, where he probably planted a church. In Acts chapter 9, verse 30, when the apostle Paul is in danger, Where does he go? He goes to Caesarea. Caesarea is most famous for the fact that the Apostle Peter brought the gospel to Cornelius, the Roman Centurion, who came to saving faith there in Caesarea. In Acts 21, when Paul is heading back to Jerusalem, it's the believers in Caesarea who care for him. He stays with Philip and believers, members of that church in Caesarea, accompany and serve Paul as he goes to Jerusalem. Our passage mentions two other cities which wind up housing mother churches. One is Ephesus, which eventually became a congregation that serves churches throughout Asia. Uh, we think that the, the, the letter in, in the Bible we have to Ephesus was a letter that was read by churches around Asia, with the church in Ephesus being the hub church. Another church is Sancre, that city just side outside of Corinth the city where Paul cut his hair. Do you know who is from St. Cree? A woman by the name of Phoebe, whom Paul describes as a faithful servant of that church. Paul was so helped by her that he describes her at the end of Romans as a patron of many as well, and myself as well. So look at all these first century churches mentioned in these few verses, all of them in a unique way playing a role in encouraging evangelism around the world. It's easy today to think of churches as community centers. Okay, admittedly not in COVID-19 days. right? But push COVID out of your mind for just a moment. It's easy to think of churches as community centers or as inspiration centers, places to, to fill up your relational tank or to give you a jolt of spiritual energy, to try to get you through a difficult week. Well, like praise God, I do think churches are hubs for community and for inspiration. But the best churches, the most biblical churches, will aspire to be mother churches, churches with a long-term heart for other churches. Mother churches need to be biblically orthodox, committed to contending for the faith, once for all entrusted to the saints. We certainly see that with the church in Jerusalem and really all of these churches. May we, Mount Vernon Baptist Church, may we be a church that goes deep theologically. A church constantly shaped and formed by God's word and able to shape other churches by God's word as well. Mother churches need to be stable. And this is really a gift from God, isn't it? It's all a gift from God, but but some churches are in parts of the world where stability is really hard. Mother churches need to be stable, faithfully doing the same simple things week in and week out, year after year. Preaching, praying, singing the Bible, right? It's one of the reasons why we we gathered back in June. Uh, We know we need to be about the business of preaching and praying and singing the Bible. This is what churches do. This is what they've always done. This is what stability looks like in a church. May we be a stable church, a church that isn't tossed back and forth by the waves of popular opinion. A stable church looks more like an anchor than a buoy. A stable church preaches the gospel the same way, regardless of who is in the White House or what is on the front page. Mother churches need to be biblically orthodox. They need to be stable. Mother churches need to have a heart for other churches, eager not only to see churches planted, but churches supported in the days and weeks and months and and years ahead. May we be a church that not only plants new churches, but that pours into established churches who, for whatever reason, need the encouragement that a biblical, faithful, stable church can provide. Now, Paul could never have done what he did without the presence of these churches in these communities, without mother churches supporting him. Churches filled with faithful Christians just like you. Uh, Those faithful Christians are rarely mentioned in the New Testament, but they are. Go to the end of the New Testament letters, and you'll often see Paul referring to faithful Christians that God used to make stable churches, that God used to make Paul's Missionary journey possible. First, value mother churches. Second, and a point that I've never made before, value watering cans. Value watering cans. Now, what I mean there is value Christian discipleship. Right. the value of spending time with another believer and laboring to see him or her grow in Christlikeness. The image of watering is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me read chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So what we see here is that evangelism and discipleship is usually a team effort. Very rarely is only one person involved. God always gets the glory because he's the one who grants the growth. Our duty is to plant and to water gospel seeds. So I want to focus on watering, because most of us are like Apollos. Uh, Paul even was often like Apollos. Watering works that he had previously planted and praying for God to bring growth, not merely growth in conversion, but growth in maturity. So notice how much watering takes place in our passage today. Paul is the most obvious example. Look at verse 23. After spending some time there, that's in Antioch, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, that region is filled with cities like another Antioch, Antioch of Pisidia, like Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. These These are the churches that God used Paul to plant several years before. No mother church is there, at least not yet. But Paul goes back to visit them. And Luke tells us why. Paul went about strengthening all the disciples. Strengthening requires watering. And this is the most overlooked aspect of Paul's missionary travels. I think if you were to run into someone and ask them about Paul, one of the last things that they would say is that Paul spent so much time watering already planted churches. I want to make it clear to you. Look at Acts chapter 14, verse 21. Notice what Luke reports at the end of Paul's first missionary journey. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, that it's not enough to plant seeds. You must water because the trials of the world will burn them up. Look at Acts chapter 15, verse 36. This is the start of Paul's second missionary journey. He is still a watering can, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Down to verse 41. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This kind of watering was a regular, normal part of the missionary activity of Paul, strengthening churches by watering gospel seeds. Now my concern for the church today is that somewhere along the way, pastors and churches grew content in planting gospel seeds, which we should always be doing. We should always be planting gospel seeds. We should always be looking for individuals who have not heard the gospel and seek to bring the gospel to them. But somewhere along the way, pastors and churches stopped watering those gospel seeds churches who let the need for evangelism eclipse their responsibility for discipleship have missed the mark and in the long run the church will die as a result let's look at priscilla and aquila and see if we see this watering ministry in their lives remember these are the christian tent makers that paul met in corinth Uh, Paul must have discipled them and been impressed by them because they traveled with him all the way to Ephesus. Paul clearly trusted them. Paul wanted them to stay in Ephesus because Luke tells us in verse 19 that Paul left them there. I don't think he just abandoned them. I think the idea is that, you know, I can't stay here. I've I've got to go do some watering in these churches that God used me to plant years ago, but I want you to stay. I want you to be here. So he, he preaches in the synagogue. Some must have come to faith. And Paul leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. Now, eventually, Aquila and Priscilla become hosts to a, a church in Ephesus. We know that from 1 Corinthians 16, that they hosted a church in their home. Well, in verse 24, Luke draws our attention to their watering ministry. Verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus... He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, was Apollos a believer, a genuine believer in Christ before Uh, Priscilla and Aquila took him aside, I think so. We're told that he was eloquent, which can mean that he was learned. We're told he was competent, which can mean that he was powerful. We're told that he was instructed, literally that he was catechized in the Christian faith, in the way of the Lord. We're told that he was fervent in spirit, which could mean that he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and we're told that he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Now, I know the devil is a great theologian, but but Luke seems to be presenting Apollos as as more than a good theologian. He seems to be presenting Apollos here as a, a true believer. And like Paul, when Apollos came to Ephesus, he goes to the synagogue and he preaches, and that's when Priscilla and Aquila hear him but they don't like what they hear, at least not entirely. Luke tells us they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, what did Apollos get wrong? Well, we're told in verse 25 that he knew only the baptism of John. Luke is referring to John the Baptist, right? the prophet at the start of Jesus' ministry who pointed people to Jesus and baptized them for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Well, some suggest that Apollos was a Christian the way that an Old Testament saint was a Christian, believing as best he could with the light he had. They suggest that Apollos, like an Old Testament saint, didn't really fully understand the meaning of Jesus' ministry, but was genuinely a believer, again, in the way that Old Testament saints before the cross would have been believers. Well, maybe that's true, but I think given the fact that Apollos taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, I think it's, it's better to believe that he, he really and genuinely understood and believed the gospel, that he was genuinely a Christian. I find it easier to believe that he didn't understand baptism. In other words, he couldn't explain what Christian baptism is, what it symbolizes, and why Jesus called it to be the first public act of Christian obedience. Now, it's so funny to say this in a a Baptist church, but honestly, we don't talk about baptism very much. Uh, There's a tendency, especially in our generation, to not focus on what can divide Christians, right? Ours is a gospel-centered generation. And there's value in emphasizing what unites believers and not focusing on what divides us. So we have the gospel coalition. We have Together for the Gospel. These are are, are great ministries, but it's still important to talk about baptism. The baptism of John pointed forward to what Christ would do. Christian baptism points backward not only to what Christ has done on the cross, but what Christ has done in the believer's life. The earliest Christians practiced baptism by immersion, meaning they got all wet underwater for those who had already been saved by God through repentance and faith. Christian baptism is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Right, when you go, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands if you've experienced believer's baptism where you got all wet, but just remember back. If that's you, remember back to that day. When you go underwater, right, that's, you're like this. Like that's a picture of you in the grave, right, dying to your sin, dead to your sin. All right? When you come up, right, you're, you're lifted up. Well, that's a picture of the resurrection. You are now alive. You are now freed from your sin. You are now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, able to walk in, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, able to walk in newness of life. So uh, I remember years ago, preaching on baptism here, I gave you the acronym FILL. FILL, as in fill the baptistry. In baptism, you get a new family, the church, a new identity. Christ is now your identity. You know, you've now died to your sin, and now Christ is your life, a new family, a new identity. You have a new life. You know, you're now a Christian, able to walk in obedience to God, and you have a new Lord. Christ is your Lord. My guess is Apollos, though saved, did not understand all of that. He hadn't put the pieces together that in calling people to saving faith meant also calling them to baptism calling them to make their faith public, to make their unity with Christ apparent to the world. So, brothers and sisters, believers' baptism, the baptism I've just described, which is for those who have already repented and believe, believers' baptism is certainly not the most important thing about us, regardless of what the title of our church says. Baptism is not the most important thing about us. But don't let that lead you to think that baptism is unimportant. We are commanded by Christ to follow him in baptism. And so if you are a Christian and old enough, old enough to make a public profession, you should be baptized. You need to be baptized, it's a public, countercultural, God-glorifying picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life. And Priscilla and Aquila I think, explained that to Apollos. Now, Priscilla and Aquila were not teachers in any formal sense. Aquila didn't teach in the synagogue, neither did his wife, but they were watering cans, right? They were correcting young Apollos who had so much potential, but who needed to grow in his understanding of the Lord. We have another example of a watering can, and that is Apollos. Look at verse 27. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So Apollos wanted to go to Achaia. This is the region that had Corinth as its capital. Apollos wanted to go where the gospel had already been preached, where Paul had already labored. Apollos wanted to water. And notice that the young church in Ephesus commended Apollos. Apollos wanted to go, but he didn't go until the church in Ephesus encouraged him and sent him off, in fact, with a letter of recommendation. I would just say by way of an aside, if you are thinking about seminary or the mission field or the pastorate, I'd encourage you to remember this passage. You know, would your brothers and sisters encourage you to go? You know, have you asked them? Well, notice what Apollos did in Corinth, verse 27. He greatly helped those who through grace had believed. He watered. He discipled. He helped them by teaching Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, apparently in a way that maybe was even a little better, a little clearer. than than the Apostle Paul, this teaching deepened their faith. It led them to trust and to, to love Christ more. Apollos watered. Now, what are you and I to make of all of this watering? Well, if you are an unbeliever, I'd like you to notice something that I think is compelling about biblical Christianity. It's not only the breadth of the church that the earliest Christians cared about. The earliest Christians didn't care merely how how wide the church was they didn't even care mainly how many churches there were they valued the depth of the churches that had been planted i think many today are skeptical of christians and skeptical of the church because they they see it as a place full of people mainly concerned about budget size and about seating capacity i mean tell me again COVID 19 hasn't shaken that up a little bit I know that there are churches like this. I, I know our, our own temptations to think like this. I know that their church is content to bring people in the doors, to, to plant gospel seeds, but who aren't willing or don't understand the importance of watering them, of discipling them, of shepherding them once they are in. Right? That is not biblical Christianity. In the Bible, saints are watered and they're, they're nurtured, they're cultivated, they're cared about. Right? They, aren't, they aren't numbers on a page, but people always in need of God's mercy and grace. So if you believe in God, then you expect him not only to save, but to shepherd. And what else should you expect from a church? And it's what you find in real biblical, however imperfectly, it's what you find in real biblical Christianity. And if you're an unbeliever, that should be attractive to you, what we find in Scripture. Now, to my faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are a Christian, are you doing any watering? Please, please identify someone that you can take to the side and gently push a little closer to Jesus. This is how the Holy Spirit has sustained his church for 2,000 years. Yes, preaching matters but the church has been sustained by Priscilla's and Aquila's faithfully taking people to the side and pushing them a little bit closer to Jesus. Now, another group of people, maybe you're a Christian and it's very difficult for you to hear this exhortation to water because truth be told, you feel dry. You feel like you need to be watered. Do you need water? There are certainly seasons in our spiritual lives where the soil of our heart feels hard and dry. And maybe it's because you aren't being watered the way that you should be. Just as a flower can turn to the sun on its own to try and soak up its rays and thrive, maybe you need to turn, if you will, to the clouds and try to soak up a little bit of rain. If you're a Christian who knows yourself right now to be particularly dry, Maybe you need to do some hard work and turn towards the water. Plumb the depths of God's word. Prayerfully go to the Lord and ask him to revive you through his spirit and his word. You know, if it's safe for you, I would encourage you to come back at 9 a.m. I know, 9 a.m. You've all been sleeping till 9 the past few months. Come back at 9. If it's safe for you, and join us for Sunday school. So long as COVID is, and, uh, and we need to operate with that mentality, we're going to keep social distancing and masking where appropriate in the church building, and Sunday school will be no different. We're going to try to make it as safe as we can from our end, and if it's safe for you, I'd encourage you to come and be watered by the book of Romans, be watered by these topical but biblical Bible studies that are coming up on the conscience or on the spiritual graces or uh, on difficult Christian questions, uh, come and be watered. These are designed to water the gospel seeds in your heart. And if you are simply not growing as a Christian, and this has been going on for a while, would you reach out to me? Would you reach out to another elder? Would you reach out to someone and share that with us? Yes, God gives the growth, but you may just need a watering can in your life, and we're happy to try and provide one. First, value mother churches. Second, value watering cans. And third, value humble saints. Value humble saints. Priscilla and Aquila pop up in various parts of the New Testament. In Romans 16, verse three, Paul refers to them as his fellow workers in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 19 paul refers to the church that meets in their house I mean, that's just kind of cool isn't it you know i mean it's in the bible for us to read today that they hosted a church in their home in second timothy 4 19 paul tells timothy to greet them paul loved them and urged timothy to greet them this is a special couple they made tents whether they were whether priscilla and aquila were more blue collar or more small business owner i'm not sure we aren't told that aquila taught publicly we're never told if aquila was ever an elder as a woman priscilla would not have been an elder in the early church and she wouldn't have taught men and women in the church gathering she would have known both from her time with paul and from paul's writings that elder leadership and elder ministry are reserved by Scripture to qualified men, not to all men, but to qualified men. But none of this stopped Aquila or Priscilla from serving. They didn't need a title. They didn't even need the gift of teaching. They just needed the gospel and a heart to serve. And I love the fact, again, that Christians all around the world today know this Christian couple for the way they humbly but boldly took the great Apollos aside and corrected him. Again, I, I don't even know when you know that I'm being funny. All right. How much am I going to know when there's humor in the Bible? But to me it is hysterical the way Apollos is described as this incredible, extraordinary, powerful teacher. And then you read and Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and explained to him the things of God more accurately. If there's like anybody that you would think you don't have to do that, the way Apollos is described, it would be Apollos. But that's exactly what they do, and that's exactly what Priscilla does, a woman. She, with her husband, takes him aside and straightens him out. And so I'd like to address the, the women here this morning. If you struggle with the fact that the Bible limits the office and the function of elders to biblically qualified men, I know that that can be hard to embrace, especially when we live in a world that does all it can every minute of the day to argue there really is no fundamental difference between men and women. And it can be hard in light of that teaching to see God's wisdom in giving men and women different roles in the church, and yes, in the home. And I pray that you would understand these different roles are not a matter of different dignity, different value, different worth. They are just that, different, different roles. Just as God the Father had the role of sending God the Son, and God the Son had the role of being sent, and yet both are God. So we, as God's creatures, have been given, according to God's inscrutable wisdom, different roles. And those different roles do not make any of us inherently less valuable than the other. We are of the same value, but we have different jobs. And God saw fit to limit the office of pastor to qualified men. And I pray that you would embrace this truth and that you would see what a gift To God and to the church, you are. Learn from Priscilla. She didn't teach in the synagogue, but when something needed to be said, she joined with her husband and she spoke clearly. Now I want to share with you a Priscilla moment that I had this week, and I sought permission from the Karens to, to share this, but this week I learned that Anna Karen broke her arm. She's fine. She broke her arm. And uh, so I called and I didn't know many details about this. And of course, Richard has had health issues galore for so long and so I called them on the phone and uh, Anna answered the phone and, and we started talking and eventually she put me on, on speaker so that I could talk to Anna and Richard at the same time. And, and I'm sharing with them and of course, I'm trying to help them know that as a, um, as a concerned pastor, I know how hard it can be stuck at home with COVID-19 that's compounded by being stuck at home with Richard's eyesight. Now that's compounded by being stuck at home with a broken arm. And, and Anna just lovingly and gently interrupted me and said, Aaron, God is sovereign. There are things we can learn when we are away from the body that we cannot learn if we have the blessings of being with the body. And those are the things that God is teaching us right now. She said something like that, and I said, yes, ma'am. I have a job, right? I have a job. Praise be to God. I walk up and I get behind this pulpit that thankfully isn't larger than me. And I, I deliver the word of God. But, but, but women, you have a, a job as well. A special role in the church. Now, please don't all call me on the same day to correct me. But just recognize what God empowers Men like Aquila, maybe Aquila was an elder in the church in Ephesus, I I don't know, but the Bible certainly doesn't make it clear that he was an elder. And yet he is commended in chapter after chapter of the Bible as being a faithful servant of the Lord. So may God give us many Aquilas and many Priscilla's. Now, what about Apollos? I'm not sure that there's anyone in scripture whose teaching is commended the way Apollos is commended. He was Apollos was Spurgeon before they were Spurgeon. Now, I know this is an argument from silence, but Apollos seems to have graciously received the correction from Priscilla and Aquila. It did not matter to Apollos that they were just tent makers. He listened and he learned, apparently, and he went on to preach more powerfully than ever before in Corinth. So are you willing to be corrected the way Apollos was apparently willing to be corrected? And what about Paul? What about paul in the book of acts as paul's second missionary journey comes to an end if i were writing this if it weren't luke but if aaron was writing the book of acts and we got to the end of paul's second missionary journey i would have described the banners that people were like throwing up in anti welcome home paul good job paul like i would have been talking about the party that people had just reveling in all the work that paul had done instead luke The author of Acts takes the spotlight off of Paul and he puts it on this startup, Apollos. And I don't think Paul minded one bit. Paul never said a bad word about Apollos. You can read through Acts, read through 1 Corinthians, read through 2 Corinthians. Paul recognized we all have different gifts. And more importantly, Paul knew that his ministry wasn't about him. He knew that ministry is not about one individual, it's not about the pastor. I'm so thankful to vote in some elders today, uh, some deacons. Not about them. It's not even about the faithful Christian who shows up so early to practice music, to, to lead us in music. Do you realize how early they're going to be getting here starting next week when Sunday school's at nine? It's not even about them. All right, Christianity is about a Jewish carpenter turned rabbi who never complained when he was scorned and reviled, and ultimately hung on a cross. So how could a man like Paul, committed to knowing nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, really mind the fact that a man like Apollos received for a season a little more glory than him? The heart of Christianity isn't a famous apostle back then or a celebrity preacher today. The heart of Christianity is a crucified Messiah, who died in the place of sinners like you and me, sinners who deserve eternal death and judgment for our rebellion against God. And God the Father sent God the Son into the world to die in the place of people who rebel against him, people just like you. And the Father raised him from the dead so that in Christ you could have everlasting life and know him forever and ever. Is that you? As you come and hear what I hope is the most interesting account of the end of Paul's second missionary journey and the beginning of his third, most importantly, is that you? Are you a sinner who's been saved by the blood of the lamb? Are you a saint who in Christ has seen all his or her sins forgiven? There is nothing more humbling than recognizing because of your sin, you deserve death and hell, there's nothing more wonderful than following Christ with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and working hard to plant gospel seeds and working hard to water gospel seeds and then recognizing to God alone be all the glory. God calls us to be humble saints because we follow a humble savior. And that brings us for now to the end of Acts the next few months we're going to be studying some other things we're at a good stopping point paul has completed his second missionary journey for sure perhaps begun his third missionary journey it's a good time to ponder the spread of the gospel a dynamic movement of men and women exercising their gifts for the good and the growth of the local church where do you fit into all this you What part do you play? Are you part of a church that wants to care for other churches as best she can with whatever gifts and resources God has given her? Oh, how I will be praying that Emmanuel Church will be a mother church, reaching the nations where you guys are. Are you hard at work watering gospel seeds wherever they're planted, discipling within the context of a local church, even in the midst of COVID-19, striving to give of yourself to others, is that you? Are you a humble saint, willing to correct gently and quietly like Priscilla and Aquila, willing to receive correction like Apollos, willing to give up the spotlight like Paul? And if the answer to these questions is yes, It is only because you've been changed by the gospel for no other reason than that. It's only because you believe it's not about you, it's about him, our crucified and resurrected Savior. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for the amazing ministry that you gave Paul and Aquila, Priscilla, Apollos, Timothy, Silas, Luke, Barnabas, Mark, Philip, Stephen, Peter, James, John, and so many others whose names we've encountered in the book of Acts so far. Father, we know that our names will never be written in scripture, but we pray that we would have a deep and abiding desire to see our name in the Lamb's book of life. We ask you to make us mindful of how awesome you are and how much we need you for life and for faith. We pray for those who might not genuinely know you that even today through the preaching of your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would work life in their hearts, leading them to repentance and faith. We pray for those of us who do know you that we would grow deeply to love you more to rely upon your word, to love the saints, and to do it all to the praise of your glorious grace. It's in Jesus's name that we pray, amen.